0: complex reading so well. I'm about to do something which I've only ever done once before in public. I'm about to sing solo. Um, Some of you I know will be old enough to to remember what I'm going to sing and you might be able to finish if I start. So here it comes. You ready? On the 14th of February 1966. that's right, you oldies. Uh, Of course, the 14th of February 1966 was Decimal Currency Day. It was a Monday. The 13th of February 1966 was a Sunday. And on Sunday, the 13th of February 1966, we carried around in our wallets pounds, shillings and pence. That was legal tender in Australia. But on the 14th of February 1966, a Monday, then the only thing you could buy with pounds, shillings and pence was dollars and cents because the old uh, currency had become redundant and the only thing that gave it worse was its value in dollars and cents. The coming of decimal currency made the old currency redundant. Now that is precisely what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that the old covenant has been made redundant. The way people related to God through Moses and the law is redundant and it is no longer valid. The Old Testament pointed forward to the New Covenant. The New Covenant has come and it has fulfilled uh, the Old Covenant. It was foreshadowing the New Covenant. Now if you look in your Bibles you will notice that we've skipped a few chapters. If you go back to chapter 4 you will see that the writer's concern there is to talk about the promised rest and the promised rest of the people of God he says in chapter 4 is found in the Lord Jesus. And then chapter 5, 6 and 7 he shows that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king and a priest and similarly the Lord Jesus a king and a priest and now we come to chapter 8 now remember that when the Bible was first, first came to us it didn't have verses and it didn't have chapters uh, it was just one long scroll Chapters were added in the 13th century and verses were added in the 16th century. So how does the author of this sermon show that this is a new part of the sermon? Well, he does it by beginning and ending this section with a quote. If you look at chapter 8, verse 8, you have the longest quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament, a quote from Jeremiah 31, and if you just flip the page to chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, you'll see that he bookends this section and shows with a quote from the same passage, Jeremiah chapter 31. So the section begins with a quote from from Jeremiah 31 and ends with a quote from Jeremiah 31. And the whole purpose of this is that Jeremiah 31 is about how God is going to bring that new covenant into place. And this whole section is showing us that you don't go back to the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant has become redundant. Jesus has come and he has instituted the New Covenant. Now what is so good about the New Covenant in which we live? Now come with me to chapter 8 verse 8. Jeremiah says that the New Covenant has three features. Look first of all at verse 10 of chapter 8. The Lord himself will put his law in their minds and write them on their heart. In other words, God will give us his spirit and the law, God's teaching, will be internalised. There will be new life springing from within us. We don't relate to God on the basis of external rights but by our very, our very nature has been changed and we have the law written within us. We are governed within by God's Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. Secondly, look at verse 11. The knowledge of God will be direct. It won't be through a priest and it will be personal. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. So here is a relationship, notice. There is no discrimination. No age discrimination, no gender discrimination, no social status discrimination. From the least to the greatest, they will all know me. This is the new covenant which we take for granted. And of course I think the great feature is verse 12. That is, he says forgiveness is the outstanding feature. The God who has a perfect mind and has a perfect memory, chooses to forgive. Look at verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. No accusation. No condemnation. We keep bringing up our past before God, and God says, forgotten, it is not there. Pastor, uh, one of our pastors in my experience uh, was talking about flying on one occasion from San Francisco back to Washington DC in the United States. He was sitting next to a man who had his little newborn, one year old son with him and our pastor said, you know, what have you been doing? He said, well I've just been, I work in Washington DC and I've been to San Francisco to introduce our new son to his grandparents and we're now going back. What do you do in Washington, D.C.? I work for the Justice Department. What section of the Justice Department do you work with? The Nazi Search Unit. This is a number of years ago. And my pastor said he was surprised. They're still finding Nazis. Yes, 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 we are still finding Nazis. And what is the experience when you go and knock on the door and you find the Nazi? He says, well, most often it is a great sense of relief that all of a sudden you can do something about this guilt with which I have been living. You see, that's the truth, isn't it? None of us have broad enough shoulders to bear the guilt of our past. And we often overlook the great benefit of the new covenant that in Jesus your past is gone. You might still bear the effects of it But before God, God will not remember it. There is no ongoing guilt. Verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. And so therefore he says, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So don't take me back to law because it is redundant. Don't take me back to the sacrificial system. It is redundant. Don't take me back to that whole system. It is redundant because fulfilment has come in Jesus. To drift back, the writer is saying on the base of verse 13, is to drift back to the ageing. To drift back to the obsolete. To drift back to the vanishing and it no longer applies. It is as useful as decking out your pounds, shillings and pence in a decimal currency age. Now, I find what is interesting about this this, uh, book, this sermon of Hebrews, is the number of occasions in which the writer makes a comparison. Now, you sort of get into trouble, don't you, when you start making comparisons, so that if you live on the north side of the railway line in Ashfield, well, you're better off than living on the south side, or or vice versa, or rugby league is better than rugby union, or or if you want to pick a a, a fight with a Malaysian or a Singaporean, well, the food in Malaysia is better than the food in Singapore, You know that you're going to get into trouble. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in the New Testament there are 19 comparatives that is better. This is better than that, this is better than that. But 13 of those 19 are found in the letter of Hebrews. He's saying here's a better covenant. Here's a better hope. Here are better promises. Don't drift back because you're drifting back to something which is inferior. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't try and mix them. Don't go back. And there are three, as you see in your outline there, there are three betters here. And the first the first better of the new covenant is in chapter nine, and is that we are brought into a better presence. Look at verses one to five here. He describes the layout and the furniture of the tabernacle because when God entered a covenant with his people he set out the pattern of the tabernacle, not the temple. It was the, uh, the tent of the tabernacle which uh, God laid out for his people. Now look at verse 2. There's the first room which is the holy place. It is called the holy place. Then there's a curtain. Then verse 3 there's the most holy place. And in verse 4 there's the, the golden altar and the ark. And notice what he says in verse 6, the priests go regularly to the holy place and they perform their rituals, but verse 7, it is the high priest alone who can go to the most holy place and that only once a year and when he goes to the most holy place once a year he must never go without blood. Notice it is for his own sins and the sins of the people. Now, friends, notice how we are reminded by the writer here that this system which prevailed under the old covenant was an imperfect system. That is, that the high priest who represents the people is himself sinful, and therefore he's got to atone for his own sins in going into the most holy place. But notice also that he needs to take fresh blood which needs to be shed again and again and again on an annual basis. It is not a perfect once and for all sacrifice. So under the old covenant we had a priest who represented us who was imperfect and we had a sacrifice, a blood, which needed repeating and needed refreshing again and again. And notice also that the tabernacle was the symbol of God's presence but God says who is to come to him into the tabernacle and the terms on which they come. Now notice this, this is quality of God. He says who comes and the terms in which they come. Now if you look at chapter 9 verse 9, these were ineffective because they were all external regulations. They cannot perfect the conscience. Now notice in verse 11, Verse 11 tells us, But when Christ appeared, of chapter 9, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So Jesus as a high priest does, takes us into a more perfect heavenly tabernacle. And notice verse 12, by his own blood, (coughs) which doesn't have to be shed again and again, because through his own blood he has obtained eternal redemption. Look at verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not an earthly tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear before God himself on our behalf. So you see the the preacher is saying this, don't drift back to the temple, don't drift back to the tabernacle, they're a shadow, they're a copy, they are a symbol. Through Jesus we come into the very presence of God himself and he is a perfect high priest and his blood, according to verse 14, will always be effective. It will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, um, most years, Maxine and I end up in London at some point, And I never feel like I'm in London until I go to the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square. And when I go into the National Gallery, I always go and look at one painting I love to sit before it and I remember one time that this area of the gallery was closed and I read the next day in the paper that the curator of the National Gallery said, yes, this area has to be closed because they have to re-lacquer the floor in front of this particular painting because they reckon it's the most popular painting in the whole of the collection of the National Gallery in London. And very often I just go and sit there and when I go and sit there and look at this painting I feel like, yes, I'm in London again. The painting is a portrait of the execution of Lady Jane Grey in the Tower of London under the reign of Queen Mary in 1552. It was painted by a French painter who had a particular interest in painting uh, executions in England. I don't know why, but his name was Paul de la Roche. And it is just a magnificent painting. On my study wall at home, there is a framed copy of that painting. It is one tenth the size of the real thing. But when I go to the National Gallery in London, I go and look at the real thing. Because though I live with a copy, that doesn't compare with looking at the real thing. Now, the writers say, look, the tabernacle was impressive, the temple is even more so. Imagine the furniture and the curtains, the altar, the blood, the priests. But is there only the a copy? They're only a shadow. Jesus didn't enter, verse 11, a place made by the hands of men. He didn't come with animal sacrifice. He entered the perfect tabernacle once and for all with his own blood. Not for his own sin because he didn't have any, but for our sin. Now it's a great truth. We are brought by Jesus to God himself. It is a better presence. Don't go back to the symbol. Secondly, notice in verse 10 of chapter 9 he says that Jesus is a better priest. Now notice animal blood deals with externals but real cleansing of the conscience he says in verse 14 comes through the blood of Christ. How much more the blood of Christ will cleanse our conscience. You see, Jesus is a perfect high priest. The basis of the new covenant is blood. It is the blood of our perfect priest, Jesus, on our behalf. Look at verse 15. He has died as a ransom to set us free. It is by his death where he represented me and you that I am redeemed and brought to God. And because of this we have a promised eternal inheritance on the basis of the work of Jesus. And so he says there, look, Moses purified the tabernacle with blood. He purified the scrolls with animal blood. But those are copies of the reality. Look at chapter 9 verse 23. The heavenly things require better sacrifices than these. And Christ goes into heaven itself, verse 24, to appear in God's presence, not like the high priest who had to go repeatedly with animal blood, but he appeared once and for all, verse 26. He would have had to offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. do you see what he's saying? The sacrifice of Jesus, which is at the centre of our faith, is not like animal sacrifice. The sacrifice of an animal is not loving. The sacrifice of an animal is not voluntary. The sacrifice of an animal is not perfect. But when Jesus sacrificed himself, it was an act of love. It was a voluntary sacrifice. And it was a perfect sacrifice. You see, Jesus as a priest brings his own sacrifice and brings us into the presence of God. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. Isn't it a wonderful truth that the writer says? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins because God has prepared a body for Jesus. Verse 5 A body you prepared for me, and Jesus offers that body back to God in obedience. Verse 7, here I am, I have come to do your will. He comes at Bethlehem into a prepared body. He doesn't sully that body by sin in any way and he offers a perfect life back to Almighty God. God takes no delight in the animal sacrifice of the old covenant but verse 8 of chapter 10 says, when he says you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and burnt offerings, and These are offered according to the law. Behold, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the necessity of the old covenant in order to establish the new covenant. Verse 11 of chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. He stands daily to perform his duties because his work is never done. Go back to chapter 9 and you look through the furniture of the old tabernacle and what's not there? What's not there is a chair. There is nowhere for the priest to sit because the priest can never sit because his work is never done. Look at verse 12 of chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is complete. There is no more to do. The day of atonement ends. The last great day of atonement is the day that Jesus dies and offers himself to God at the cross. Verse 12 He offered for all time one sacrifice. And so he sat down. Verse 14, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He is a better priest and therefore put your trust in him. He bears our sin once and for all. The work is done. He He sits down. A better presence, God himself. A better priest, a perfect, blood untainted, a loving voluntary and perfect sacrifice. Now thirdly and finally, notice that he says there's a better result. Go back in your Bible and uh, if you've got a a, a hard copy there you can start underlining it because it's good to underline your Bible. Look at chapter 9 verse 12. It says the better result of what Jesus has done. He entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. You are purchased by God for all eternity. Chapter 9 verse 14. Have a look at what he says. Underline this. For where a will is involved uh, involved, the death of those who made it must be established. Um, sorry verse 14 how much more will the blood of Christ who through the blood the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God your conscience can be purified, be purified because of the work of Jesus chapter 9 verse 15 the ransom has been paid you have been set free chapter 9 verse 26 He deals with sin once and for all. And probably I think the greatest of all verses is in chapter 10 verse 10 and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Are you certain that you are right with God, that God is at peace with you, that no matter what your past is involved, Your conscience is clean. It will never accuse you because Jesus has suffered in your place. Now dear friends, I just want to say this. I remember after being at Ashfield for a number of years, there was a lady who used to come into our evening service and I think I was preaching the gospel faithfully night after night after night. And I remember going to visit her on what turned out to be her deathbed in Western Suburbs Hospital. And I looked down to her and she said, Oh, Mr Cook, I don't know if I've been good enough. That's how you break a pastor's heart. I think she heard me again and again say that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. It's all about him. We cannot be good enough. But she said, Mr Cook, I don't know if I've been good enough. The reality is that none of us have. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, He brings us into the very presence of God Himself as perfect men and women on the basis of His perfect life and substitutionary death. Do you have a clean conscience which will never accuse you? This is the Pope Clement VIII, his theological advisor, a cardinal by the name of Cardinal Bellerini. He is recorded as saying this, the greatest Protestant error, this is uh, 16th century, the greatest Protestant error is its certainty, its assurance. And when I used to go to the gym down in Burwood, I'd get there very early in the morning, it was owned by a very good Roman Catholic man and there were two other Roman Catholics there very early in the morning and there was me. And I knew they liked because they were always rude to me. That's how Australian men show their affection. And they were always picking at me because I was a Protestant. Don't trust him. And yet the thing that they never really understood was assurance. How can you be sure? How can you be certain? You see, because if it is a matter of Jesus plus me, then I can never be certain. But because it's a matter of Jesus as the perfect type priest, I can be certain because God has provided the perfect priest to stand in my place. It's like that book says, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is all about Jesus. And dear friends, as we come to the new covenant, let us remember this, we have a better presence into the presence of God himself, a better priest, a perfect priest, Jesus Christ, and a better effect, I have certainty in my relationship with God. But I want to put it to you that that very gospel that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is a gospel which very often is lost in our day and age. Let me read to you a couple of questions from a a graduate of our college who worked in New Guinea in T.E.E. Theological Education by Extension. This lady was establishing small groups of people throughout New Guinea studying the Bible in theological education. Each of these groups would consist of about six people with one person as the leader. And after doing this for about 15 years, the lady sent out a questionnaire to all her leaders to see what they actually believed. There are about 100 questions, but let me read just two of them. Listen to this question. Ezekiel was a true believer... He was growing more and more in obeying God and confessing his sins. One day, though, he was lazy and fell asleep instead of doing his work. The next day he repented of his laziness and then he suddenly died. Do you think he went to heaven? 100% of the leaders said, yes, Ezekiel went to heaven. Next question, John. John was another true believer. He was growing more and more in obeying God and confessing his sins. One day, though, he was being lazy and fell asleep instead of doing his work. Then he suddenly died in his sleep when a tree fell on his head. So when he died, he had not repented of his laziness. Do you think he went to heaven? 95% of the leaders said no. John didn't go to heaven because when he died, he had unconfessed sin in his life. Now that, dear friends, is a very shallow and flimsy ground of assurance. And yet my experience in working in a number of congregations is that the vast majority of people think that's the way it is. That I will stand before God on the basis of Jesus plus my obedience of the Ten Commandments. Nothing wrong with obeying the Ten Commandments. But if I stand before God on the basis of my record as well, at, at all, I'm going to be condemned, aren't I? Because it's the equivalent of saying to God, well, I'll trust elsewhere than the way you have provided It says, Jesus gives you a seat at the table. I've heard it put like this in one of our churches. Jesus gives you a seat at the family table. Now you work hard to keep yourself in that seat. So it's all about me. What sort of a family is this? That if I do the wrong thing, I can be exiled from the family, thrown out of the family. And so the idea is that when Jesus said, it is finished, it's the equivalent in saying, I've done my part. Now it's over to you, you've got to finish it off. And yet we're Sunday today, isn't it? Nothing in my hand, I bring. Simply to your cross, I cling. naked to to you for dress, helpless, look to you for grace, foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. There's a business lady in our congregation at Tremor. Uh, she has to supply goods. She said to me recently, uh, Very often when I sell things, people say, Can you guarantee supply? I always say, I can only guarantee you three things. One, you will pay your taxes. Two, you will die. And three, you will have a conversation with Jesus. (laughs) And most often they say, oh, it doesn't apply to me, I'm not a Christian. As they're not being a Christian, the reality doesn't apply to you. You will die. You will stand before God. And what do you have but Jesus? And he is entirely sufficient. And so the writer is saying that in Christ we have a better priest, a better presence, a better result. Are you standing in the assurance and certainty of knowing Christ? Well, our pastor never allows the truth to go unapplied. Unapplied truth is not biblical truth. It's something else and something less. Look down with me to chapter 10, verses 9, verses 19 to 21. And would you notice that here he says in chapter 10 verses 19 to 21 and verse 22 he comes to the first one. Therefore on the basis of all that has been said let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. There is no barrier. The cross is my day of atonement. I can always come before God in Jesus with a clean heart, my body washed with pure water. Do you come? I've been thinking about this lately, just this past week, because I've been preparing sermons on Proverbs. What would I say if I had five minutes with Scott Morrison you know, the debate has been about how many advisors he has. This is, I think, what I'd say to Scott Morrison. Listen, when you get to the office, lock the door. Keep all the advisors out. Get on your knees and pray. And read the Bible. Get the advice, the direction of God's word. Then open the door and let them come in. Come before God in prayer. See what he says? Let us Draw near. The senior elder of the Chinese Presbyterian Church where we worked uh, in 2012 said that his parents were converted through missionaries during World War II in China. And he said, those missionaries trained my parents very well. They always taught my parents when they became Christians to end every prayer in exactly the same way. And I never heard my mother and father pray without ending their prayer in exactly the same way. They prayed like this at the end and we pray with thanksgiving trusting in the merits of Christ alone. Amen. And it is a great reminder isn't it? That when we pray I'm not praying because I deserve to be heard. I'm not praying because I've reached a certain standard. I'm praying because of the merits of Christ alone. So he says, verse 22 let us draw near. You come And you pray. And then, verse 23 let us hold unswervingly, hold fast without wavering to the hope we profess, because the one who promised is faithful. And there is only one thing impossible for God to do it is impossible for God to act contrary to himself and to say one thing, promise one thing, and then to act contrary to what he has said and to break his promise. So you hold unswervingly to the promise that God has given to you. In our Retired Men's Bible study yesterday we were saying, do we hear enough about the promises of God? No, I do not believe we do hear enough about the promises of God. Those promises are to be trusted and we are to hold unswervingly to the hope we have because of those promises. And verse 24, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. How do you do that? Keep at it. Keep doing good. Don't walk by on the other side of the street. God has created you to do good. Remember one one occasion, our our old church, the Chinese church, always having banquets. And one occasion we went to this banquet dinner of a couple in our church. He was turning 80, she was turning 70. And Maxine and I were sitting on this big table and I've got a lady sitting next to me here and Maxine's sitting here and there's a lady sitting next to her. I think her name was Carolyn. And I'm talking to this lady but I'm listening to the conversation with Maxine how did you get here tonight? It was in George Street. Oh, I was very hard. I'm staying over in a hotel in North Sydney. It was really hard to get here tonight because they're blocked off George Street and it was really hard to get here. And I thought to myself, "Right, I can actually close the conversation down right now. But she didn't. She said, And how are you getting back to the hotel after the dinner? <laughs> oh, don't don't, don't. don't. And the lady says, I don't know. I suppose I'll just go up the front and try and get a cab. Dave, oh no, do you think we could give a lift to Carol and home? Now, do you think that that is an opportunity to do good which God has prepared for us to do? Spur one another on. Here is something good that God has prepared for you to do good. And how often have people been good and kind to you? I've had great kindnesses done to me by people in this room. And yet we ought to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then look at verse 25. Don't be aloof. He says, don't be distant, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is it like at Asheville? I don't know. But I tell you what, at our church, most people are there three out of four. What is it that's keeping you away from the weekly family gathering of God's people? Because whatever allows you to stay away from church, whatever displaces church, is saying to your children that this thing that displaces church is more important than church. And if you find your children, say, are we going to church today? It's not a question. We're always going to church today. He says, don't be aloof. From the people of God. Because you are in the new covenant, we need to gather together as a family gathers together and encourage one another all the more as you see today. Well, flip back with me if you would please to chapter 8 verse 1 because I think these are the wonderful verses. I must say that in all my ministry I have never preached through Hebrews like I have this past four months. And I think because when I was at Moore College I preached my trial sermon from Hebrews and it was an absolute disaster. Uh, the principal would always, the next day after you preach the sermon they'd gather to critique the sermon and the principal would always start by saying, well, let us discuss why this sermon failed. <laughs> so, I never heard a sermon that didn't fail in the more College chapter, according to the principal. So I never preached it. But I loved being in Hebrews. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured this cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The work is done. The day of atonement is complete. When we go into eternity, it will be one word, and that is Jesus When my parents' remains were buried at Waverley Cemetery, my sisters and I had to determine what we would have written on the headstone. My parents were vital Christian people, uh, converted in their 40s. When they died in their 80s and 90s we had to look for a verse of scripture which summed up where we stood as a family. We couldn't find one that fitted Then we found a hymn and it was a Bonner hymn. My father was Scottish in background and it seemed appropriate that we choose this hymn. And this is what's on their headstone now and it's there that my remains will be in that same plot with that same headstone. Listen to these words. They're a believer's words, a new covenant believer's words. Upon a life I did not live Upon a death, I did not die. Upon another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. A better presence, a better priest, and a better result. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the nourishment of our hope and certainty that there is in the work of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, on our behalf who delivers us into your presence in heaven. The basis of our trust is his life and his death. Thank you that you have eternally purchased us and set us free from the dominion of sin. And we give thanks in our praying and pray trusting in the merits of Christ alone. Amen. Thank you, David. Um, we're going to sing. We've got. We're going to sing in Christ alone. The uh, the verse or the. Uh